You know, some Christians were standing alongside a uh, road in the early part of the evening, and they were out there standing um, near a, a corner, a sharp corner, and they, they had a sign, that they, some signs that they were waving that said, warning, the end is near. And right about that time, a, a guy pulled up and, in his car and he started yelling at these Christians. You stupid Christians, you know, you're always just so doom and gloom and, you know, that type of thing. And, you know, why don't, why don't you, you know, try making a positive impact on the world uh, for a change? And then he sped off around the corner and minutes later they heard the screeching of tires, a loud crash and an explosion. And then one of the Christians said to his friend, do you think we'd better change our sign to warning the bridge is out? (laughs) The, The title of the message tonight is warning signs and warnings need to be clear. And Paul was one who was very clear about the warnings he gave in scripture. And here in chapter, or verse 14 of chapter 10, we, we see that Paul gives us a very clear warning sign when he says this, therefore my beloved flee from idolatry. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we are coming to the end tonight of this conversation that Paul began in, in chapter 8 on this subject of the right and wrong uses of our Christian liberty. And we saw in our study last week, there in verses 10 through 13, that Paul turned to the history of the people of Israel to illustrate liberty that was used wrongly can lead to idolatry and it can lead to sexual immorality. And so with that in mind, as, as you know, Paul has just you know, kind of went through verses 1 through 13 that we looked at last week, with that in mind, with the, talking about the history of Israel, he says, therefore. In other words, because of all the examples I just gave you about the people of Israel, I'm exhorting you, I'm encouraging you, I'm admonishing you to flee from idolatry. Don't fool around with it. Flee from it. Now, the word flee that's used here in the Greek is the word fugo. And, and I love this word, fugo. When, when, you, when you hear that word, what does it make you, you know, think of? What, what do you think of? You know, what I think of is Mr. T saying, fool, go, you know, get out of here. You know, can you picture that? Mr. T, fool, go, you know, just get out of here. Don't mess around with this. Don't play around with this. Flee from it. You know, sometimes we have this tendency to think of sin. Oh, it's just a little sin. It's just a little, it's not a big deal, you know. It's okay, I got, I got a handle on this. And we have no idea that that little sin can actually kill us. It can bring great damage to us. It's like the guy who came driving up in a small little town, a little diner. He was part of the town. Everybody knew him. And so he comes walking into the diner. and like, hey, Joe, how you doing? He goes, I'm doing pretty good. And he goes, but something weird just happened. He goes, when I crossed the, the, the bridge, you know, back there just a little bit, there was a guy and he looked a little weird. I stopped and asked if he was okay. And, and he says, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. He goes, I, I just got bit by a bunch of little worms. And Joe was like, I didn't think worms would bite you. 
And there's a doctor in the diner who right away got up and he's like, they don't. And he, you know, got in his car and rushed down to the bridge and it was too late. By the time he got there, the guy had died because it wasn't little worms that he was playing with and handling. It was little baby rattlesnakes. And their venom is just as potent as uh, an adult's rattlesnake. And, and they bit him and he died. And, you know, sometimes we think, oh, this is small, this is cute, this isn't a, you know, big deal, but it's just as potent. And we need to heed the words of Paul and to flee, to to fool, go, get out of there. Now, when we hear this exhortation, though, that Paul gives here to flee from idolatry, I think that can be a little hard for us in our 21st century culture that we live in to you know, really relate to that. Like, okay, you know, we, none of us, we don't have, you know, we don't know people that have shrines in their backyards where they're, you know, sacrificing animals and, you know, that type of thing. And so we think, you know, idolatry, is that really, really an issue today? Well, you know what it is. It is still an issue. It's even an issue in the church. It's an issue amongst Christians. And, and, as, and I want to just, in the very beginning here tonight, I want to give you, I want to define for you idolatry. What, what, I want to give you three definitions of idolatry. And so if you're taking notes, number one, idolatry is changing the image of God. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, we read in the Ten Commandments, it says, you must, the Lord said, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind of image of anything in the heavens or in the earth or in the sea. Now, before you would say, well, I would never do that. I, I would never do that, and I don't know anybody that, that does that. I mean, so again, is this really relevant, Pastor Rob, to our culture? I would respond, not so fast, and here's why. In the New Testament, we are given a very clear picture of God, and the clear picture of God that we are given in the New Testament is found in the person of Jesus. Let me read to you a couple of verses. Um, in John chapter 1, speaking of Jesus, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John was saying, hey, you want to you wanna know God? You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. He's the, he, he, he's the one who, the word that became flesh. And he says, and we beheld his glory. And this is what he looked like, that his glory that we saw in Jesus was full of grace and truth. John said in John chapter 1, verse 18, No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. He's declared him. You know, sometimes my grandson, he likes to play hide and seek with me. He hides and I seek. But the way that he hides is, is just a crack up because we'll be in the same room and he'll grab a blanket and he'll put it over him, like right in plain view, you know? And then I'm like, where's Josiah? You know, where'd he go? Where's Josiah? And then he'll throw the blanket off, you know, and I'll go, oh, there he is. And, and uh, you know, he'll laugh. He thinks that's so funny, you know? But he's hiding in plain view. Well, I think when Jesus came into the world, you could say that God was hiding in 
plain view. He was easy to see. In fact, in John chapter 14, Jesus said to his disciple Thomas, he said, Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the writer of Hebrews put it this way, speaking of Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And when he uses that phrase, the express image, it it speaks of the exact representation. So idolatry is changing the image of God. And here's where this still happens today. If Jesus is the image of God for us, here's where this still happens today, is people change the image of God when someone will say something like this, the Jesus I believe in, he's loving. He would never send somebody to hell. They're changing the image. Did you know that Jesus said, he taught more about hell than he did about heaven? You know why? Because Jesus knew that hell was a real place and that real people were going to go there. So he talked about it a lot. Why? Because he doesn't want anybody to go there. Or this one. My Jesus is accepting of everyone, of every kind of lifestyle. Well, Jesus said, hey, if you love me, keep my commandments. And he who is not for me is against me. In other words, there is no neutral ground. You know, people like to be like, hey, you know, I love Jesus. They have this view, this image of Jesus, but I'm really not into the Bible. Well, guess what? Jesus wrote the Bible. He's the word spoken in the Bible. He he gives us his heart beat in the Bible. And so you can't have it both ways. We can't pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we're going to obey. That's changing the image of of Jesus. So idolatry is changing the image of God. Number two, idolatry is abandoning God's way for another way. And I think a great illustration of this happens in 1 Samuel chapter 15. It happens when Saul was the king. And God had told Saul to take his army and go against the Amalekites and he was to utterly destroy them. You see, the Amalekites, God had given them hundreds of years to repent of their sin, and they refused. And so it came to a point where God was like, they need to be, they're like a cancer that needs to be eradicated. So Saul, I want you to go down, and it's one of the few times in the Bible that God tells his people to not bring back any of the spoil. Well, Saul goes down, he's, the Lord gives them victory in the battle, but Saul does his own thing. He doesn't follow God's way. He follows his own way. And so he comes back with all of these oxen and sheep and and lambs and the king of the Amalekites, Agag. And God sends Samuel the prophet to King Saul to rebuke him. And he says, why didn't you listen? God told you to do this and you didn't listen. And Saul gives all of these excuses and reasoning. He's reasoning, I brought him back so that we could sacrifice to the Lord. When in reality, it tells us he was really worried about his perception amongst the people. And I want you to listen. It'll be on the screen, but I want you to listen to what what Samuel says to Saul there in 1 Samuel 15, verse 22 and 23. It's very interesting. So Samuel said to him, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Saul, listen, behold, 
To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed, to obey God's voice, than the fat of rams. And then check this out, verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness and iniquity and idolatry is, is as iniquity and idolatry. Isn't that interesting? Saul's saying, hey, I, I, you know, I know what God said, but I'm going to do it my way. And Samuel says, that's like witchcraft and idolatry, what you're doing there. Picking our own way above God's way. And then, I love this part of the story. Um, Samuel asks Saul for his sword, and he goes up to Agag, and he literally hacks, it says, Agag into pieces. Now, just picture that. You know, I, I just, I love the Bible. <laughs> it's like, who needs movies, right? I mean, the Bible, it's like, just lays this out. He took his sword. I mean, it's like, you know, Wolverine or something. He just hacks him in to pieces. It's crazy. So idolatry, it's abandoning God's way for another way. This is an insight from a 15-year-old and one of my friend's churches in um, Florida. He said this, we are called to disobey ourselves in order to obey God. Isn't that a heavy statement? We're called, it's for a 15-year-old, we're called to disobey ourselves in order to obey God. So idolatry is abandoning God's way for another way, and I think this is one of the biggest problems in the church today. Where believers say, you know, I know God says that, but, you know, I just really want to do this way. I see this happen a lot with young people as it relates, and actually old people too, as it relates to sexual immorality. You know, where believers who are, are, you know, they believe in Jesus, but they're, you know, even some of them sometimes living with their boyfriend or their girlfriend, and they're living in sin, and it's like, oh, you know, I know what the Bible says, but I think God's okay with that. God, no. Or, or believers who cheat on their taxes or cut corner in their businesses or, or they gossip and they rationalize. Well, you know, I know what God says, but. I mean, how many of you ever heard this before? I know what the Bible says, but. And they have a, you know, how many, how many of you have heard that before? I know what the Bible says, but. I think we need to change the phrase to, I know what the Bible says and I'm going to bow. Not but, but I'm going to bow. I'm going to surrender to that. I'm going to yield to that. You know, there's a lot of talk today about revival. But you know what always precedes revival? Obedience. Always. I read this quote this week in my uh, devotions from A.W. Tozer. I love his writings. And, and he said this, We must be willing to obey if we would know the true inner meaning of the teachings of Christ and the apostles. I believe this view prevailed in every revival that ever came to the church during her long history. Indeed, a revived church may be distinguished from a dead one by the attitude of its members toward the truth. The dead church holds to the shell of truth without surrendering the will to it, while the church that wills to do God's will is immediately blessed with a visitation of spiritual powers. Obedience precedes revival. 
We want to see revival? Hey, we need to be in that place of being obedient. In fact, sometimes I, I wrestle with this. You know, people, the, the, you know, they want to sing the song, God Bless America. And it's, it's kind of like a prayer. We're asking God to bless America. But America is so far away from God right now. Although I do believe God is moving and working and there's a resurgence that is happening. And maybe we are on the, the heels or the, the very, very beginning stage of maybe seeing a, a revival take place. But you know, we're asking God to bless us and we're, we're in rebellion and sin. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. So number one, idolatry is changing the image of God. Number two, idolatry is abandoning God's way for another way. Number three, idolatry is putting something in the place of God or above God. You see, there's a seat that God should hold in our lives and the seat that he should hold is king. He's the king. And idolatry is when I put myself or someone else or something else in that seat. That person or that thing or that pursuit becomes my king. It becomes the thing that I'm living for. You see, many Christians treat God like an additive. That this is, you know, they'll say something like this. Hey, this is what I'm pursuing or this is my plan. And I'm praying that God blesses it. Instead of, you know, the... the, the, the mindset that we have here is instead of praying, hey, God, bless what we are doing, our mindset is, Lord, help us do. Help us to be doing what you're blessing. That's where we want to be, you know? But people, you, they, they treat God like a, a genie. Hey, here's my plan. Here's my goal. Here's where I'm going. And God, I want you to bless this, you know? Like, grant me my wish. It doesn't work that way. He's the king. Jesus taught us to pray Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are we doing? What are we saying when we pray that? We're, we're praying, Lord, I want your will above my way. I want your will above my will. I want your way above my way. I want your kingdom before my kingdom. I want to bow myself to your kingdom. Lord, I want to bend myself to your plan. I'm not asking you to bend toward my plan. So Paul gives this exhortation here to flee from idolatry. And idolatry is changing the image of God. Idolatry is abandoning God's way for another way. And idolatry is putting something in the place of God or above God. This is a timeless truth that doesn't change. However, the setting can change. The circumstances can change. And obviously the setting that Paul was writing to the believers living in the first century is different than the setting and the circumstances that we are dealing with today. But the same truth applies. We as believers need to flee from idolatry. Now, before we get back to our text, I want to remind you of the setting here in Corinth and what this conversation that Paul started back in chapter 8 has been about. The city revolved around the pagan temples where all this idol worship would take place. And these temples housed what we would call today our restaurants. You know, they didn't have restaurants today. So this is where they would go and they would eat. They would eat in the pagan temples. They also, they also housed or, or off, off, you know, kind of an offshoot of the temple would be their marketplaces. They called them shambles. And in these marketplaces, you could get a, a really good cut of meat that had been offered to an idol at a really, really good price. So sometimes my wife will say to me on a Saturday morning, hey, what do you want to eat tonight? 
And my answer is always meat. Um, <laughs> I love meat. So I'm always like, chicken, steak, you know, some meat would be great. So when I say that, she plans, okay, I'm heading to Fraser Farms, and I'm going to go get some meat. You know, I'm going to bring home uh, some, uh, some, you know, shish kebab, some kebabs, or I'll bring home a steak, or whatever it might be. Well, in that day and age, if I said, I want some meat, you know, the, the wife might say, okay, I'm going to head over to the shambles. I'm going to head over to the marketplace. And it would be attached to this temple where this idolatry would take place. And this, again, like I said, was the place where the best cut of meat at the best price would be given. But this was the issue and the problem that came up that Paul was dealing with in chapter 8 was, okay, is it okay for us to eat meat that is sacrificed to idols as believers? Should we do that? And there's kind of debate in the church. And you recall, if you were with us when we went through chapter 8, Paul said there in chapter 8, the mature believer knows that an idol is nothing. It's just a piece of wood, just a piece of stone. So to eat meat sacrificed to an idol is really no big deal. However, there were also those in the body of Christ there, there were believers who had come out of that lifestyle, that they used to go to those temples and offer sacrifices to these idols, and they were all involved in, you know, all the immoral practices that were a part of it. So to them, to eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol was like participating in that idolatry all over again, and they wanted no part of it. So what Paul instructed, that we saw back in chapter 8, is he laid the responsibility, and this is, this is really interesting to me, he laid the responsibility of handling liberty rightly on the mature brother and sister. He doesn't exhort the immature, the person who's struggling to be, come on, grow up, you know? Come to the, you know, realize like the rest of us. And I, he doesn't do that. No, he puts the responsibility on the mature person, the person who realizes like, hey, this isn't a big deal. He puts the responsibility on them in this matter. And basically the big idea we saw was this, is that love and fellowship supersedes liberty. To the point where Paul would say in the very end of chapter 8 verse 13, therefore if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat again lest I make my brother stumble. Paul says, look, because I'm, I'm pursuing love and fellowship I'm putting my brother ahead of myself. I'll forfeit my liberty rather than make one of them stumble. I'll do that out of love for my brother and my sister. Well, here in chapter 10, Paul comes full circle as he closes out this conversation and talking about eating the meat again, but he's going to talk about it from a different angle. Let's pick it up in verse 15. He says, I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. So he's reminding them of this truth that they are connected together in Jesus. That they are one body, one family in Christ. And one of the things that we celebrate, that that celebrates that oneness is we do that when we partake of communion together. 
And we're all partaking together of the, those elements that represent the bread and the body of Jesus and that we're linking ourselves together as we're linking ourselves to him. We're celebrating, Paul says, one of the things that we are celebrating when we partake of communion is the oneness that we share in Jesus. But in that culture, they also believed that people actually became one all the time when they ate together. Like you're, dip, you're sitting at a table and you're all dipping in the same hummus bowl. You know, they believed, hey, you're all dipping together in the same bowl. You are becoming one. Now, we don't think that way. And we don't think like, hey, I'm you know, dipping in the chip bowl. Like we're, we're becoming one unless somebody's double dipping and spreading their germs. Then we're like, you know, no double dipping. That's why we say that, right? I don't want your germs. I don't want to become one, you know, with you. But they believed that they actually were becoming one. They looked at the whole ritual of eating together as becoming one with one another. And that's the reason why the Pharisees question, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because in their mind, hey, he's becoming one with these sinners. Why would he do that? Why would he connect himself with them in that way? Well, he went even further than that, actually. He actually became sin for them so that they could be saved, so that we could be saved. But this is the mindset that Paul is drawing upon here. This idea of eating together makes us one when he says, continue here in verse 18, observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything? And the answer is no, it's a rhetorical question. Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And then he says this, and I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Now, this sounds like Paul is contradicting what he said in in chapter 8, right? Here's what Paul's saying. Here's what we need to understand. What Paul is saying is that meat is not the problem. Meat sacrificed to idols is not the problem. It's the meeting place that's the problem. It's actually going to the temple and eating there in the temple that is the problem. If you're going to the temple of the pagan god and partaking, you're eating of the meat there, that's the problem. Even though an idol is nothing, Paul says, I mean, we know there, there's only one true God, but he says this, and he's, he's referring to something that, that the Lord talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 17, as well as some other places. But in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 17, the Lord says that behind the idol is actually a demon. That when people are sacrificing to idols, yeah, it's just a wood, it's just a stone, but behind it, there's not a God. There's only one God, but there's actually a demon. They're opening themselves up to demonic practices. So although eating meat that has been sacrificed to an idol is not a big deal, doing it in the shambles, doing it in the courts of the temple is a big deal. Because it can come across like you're condoning participating in idolatry. And what Paul's basically saying here is it doesn't fit. 
It's like one day I'm at church partaking of the cup of the Lord and the next day I'm in the temple, the pagan temple, partaking of the cup of demons. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute. It doesn't fit in the same way. Like one day somebody's sitting here on a Sunday worshiping the Lord, partaking of communion. We're having communion, you know, this Sunday. And then Monday, they're, you know, at the bar, and they're down in, you know, beer. It doesn't fit. It doesn't compute, is what Paul is saying here. Now, he says in verse 22, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Here's what he's saying. If I hang around places where the atmosphere is corrupt, I push the Lord to jealousy. But here's the question. What is he jealous of or why is he jealous? Well, the Lord's jealousy is different from ours. And this is what we need to understand. When the Bible says, when God says, I'm a jealous God, we need to understand what that means. You and I, we get jealous because we feel threatened. Somebody's in, you know, coming in on our territory or whatever and we're feeling threatened like they're, you know, Oh, the boss likes him better than me. You know, he's going to get my job or, you know, whatever. That type of thing. We feel that that's how we compute um, jealousy. The Lord's jealousy, however, is entirely different. You see, the Lord is not jealous of other gods. He's not jealous of other gods, but he is jealous for you and for me. Think of it this way. Let's say that you're a single sister here in our fellowship at Calvary Vista. And you notice a guy that shows up here from your work. And this is a guy that has a bad reputation. He has a reputation of being a womanizer. So you see him showing some interest in one of your single friends here at the church. And so you lovingly go up to her and say, hey, you know, I just want, I just want you to know I work with that guy and, and he's, he's got a bad reputation. You know, he's kind of bad news. He's like really used and abused a lot of, you know, girls. And, and uh, you know, I just want you to be careful. You know, I don't even know if he's saved. So I'm just, you know, I want you to be careful. And let's say your sister says to you, oh, you're just jealous because he's talking to me and not to you. Well, she's missing the point. It would be because she, she understands, she failed to understand that You are not jealous of him, but you are jealous for her. You're watching out for her. And so too, the Lord is not jealous of demonic entities. He knows, you know, they're nothing to him. They're no threat to him, but he is jealous for us. And so he doesn't want to see us destroyed. Therefore, he'll do whatever is necessary to bring us back to where we need to be. So the warning is about being careful. This is Paul's whole point. It's about being careful, not getting sucked into something that could hurt me, something that could ruin my witness. So then he says this in verse 23, kind of sums this up. So all things are lawful for me, but all things are, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. So here's the question that we need to ask ourselves in, the, in relationship to these matters of liberty. The question is not, hear me on this, can I do this? That's not the question. 
All things are lawful. If it's not, you know, a black and white thing in Scripture, it's one of those gray areas. Hey, all things are lawful. So the question is not, can I do this? That's not the question. The question is, should I do this? That's the question. It's lawful, but is it going to build up? Is it going to edify me? Is it going to build me up in my relationship with Jesus, or does it have the potential to pull me down? If I exercise my liberty in this setting, hey, it's lawful, I can do this, but is it going to build up my brother, or might it pull him down, this brother who's watching me? So it's back to the, what Paul's doing here is he's taking us back to the big idea that we saw there in chapter 8, that love and fellowship supersedes liberty when it comes to the body of Christ. That's why he says in verse 24, so let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. That's the way of Jesus. That's Philippians 2. Jesus left heaven. Jesus did not consider it robbery. In other words, he, to, to be equal with God, he didn't hang on to that like, like, he, like a robber's going to come and grab something. Jesus didn't grab a hold of that, that sense of him being equal with God. But he allowed himself to be, he humbled himself and he became a man and he became a servant and he made himself as a man obedient to his heavenly father. What was he doing? He was seeking the well-being of others above his own comfort. And that's how he calls us to live. So as we wrap this up tonight, Paul ends with some very practical guidelines. And first we're going to see some personal guidelines in verse 25. So this is the guidelines. Eat whatever is sold in the marketplace, asking no questions, For conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. Now I think this is primarily directed toward the weaker brother. And you know who goes to the marketplace and he's shopping for meat. And Paul says hey don't bother to ask the shop owner did this come from the temple or not. He says don't do that. For your conscience sake. Just go and buy it and enjoy it. You don't need to know where it came from. Okay. So he's saying, like, look, don't overcomplicate this to the weaker brother. When you go shopping, and apparently in that place there were some meat that was offered to idols and some that wasn't, and so you, you see a cut of meat that you like, don't go, hey, was this, did this come from the temple? Just take it, buy it, go home, eat it, enjoy it. The second guideline, though, is dealing with unbelievers. Look at verse 27. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go... Eat whatever is set before you, asking no questions for conscience sake. So your unbelieving neighbor invites you over for dinner. Don't ask him where the meat came from. Don't be like, hey, you know, did this come from the temple? Don't make a big deal of it. Don't make it an issue. Because it could, it might turn him off to Jesus. Now, I would say today, your neighbor invites you over for dinner. Don't go and, and talk to him about politics, you know. Here's why. I mean, that might be something that turns him off. Let's say, you know, he's on this side, you're on that side. Suddenly, instead of Jesus being a bridge builder because you're both sinners that needed a savior, suddenly you're divided by this. 
It's kind of the idea here is Paul's saying, look, you know, when you're with unbelievers, you know, don't make something an issue that doesn't need to be an issue. Better not to know. But then he says this, but if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for, the, for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I gave thanks? Now, here's the overall, overall idea of what Paul is saying here. In verses 28 through 30, Paul is, the idea is this, is that the unbeliever who invites you over is making a big deal that this was offered to an idol. He says, if, they, if, they, if he says, you know, hey, I got this great deal, you know, this was offered to Zeus, my God, you know, and he's kind of throwing that in your face. It's almost like he's trying to test you. This is part of my worship to Zeus. Paul says, don't eat it. Now it's time to make a stand. Don't eat it. In a similar way, I was thinking about, okay, how can I make this practical? Let's say your neighbor invites you over Saturday for a barbecue. He says, hey, Come over, I'm having a barbecue, I'm going to grill some steaks. And you're like, okay, great. And while he is grilling, he sort of boastingly says, hey, you know where I got this meat? And you're like, I have no idea, tell me. And he says, well, the other night I was driving back behind Fraser Farms and I noticed the door was open. So I went in and no one was there. And so I went into the meat department and I took 30 ribeye steaks and I brought them home. And, 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 I'm, and I decided to buy all my friends over and we're eating these. Well, that would be a good time to make a stand and say, you know, bro, sorry, I'm not going to eat your stolen meat, you know. I'm not going to do it. That's the idea. He's flaunting his sin and you shouldn't partake in it because to partake in it would be condoning it. And in a similar way, if the unbeliever is flaunting his idolatry, hey, this came from my temple of my God. Come join me as I celebrate. You know, we're celebrating eating my God. Be like, sorry, dude, I'm going to pass. I'm not going to join you in that one because there's only one God and your God is not him. That's the place where you need to make a stand. Now, you could rationalize in your mind, well, I know that an idol is nothing, and that's a really good-looking piece of steak, you know? Um, and I, I, I'm just going to go for it. I've got the liberty. But here's the point that Paul's making. It's understanding that he's asking you. He's asking you to be a part of something that means something to him. And if you participate with him, it's communicating that you agree with him. If my neighbor eats, you know, in the same way, if my, my neighbor is eating stolen beef and, I, and I'm showing up and, and I say, well, you know, I don't have a problem with it. Yeah, sure, let's do it. I'm, I'm condoning what he's doing. I should have a problem with it. So as we wrap up this conversation on liberty and how to conduct ourselves, Paul brings it back to his two main motivations for his life. The first is God's glory. That needs to be our first motivation. Look at verse 31. He says, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
Now, on this issue of exercising liberty, should we eat or should we not eat? Here's what Paul's saying. Let God's glory be the thing that motivates you. Let the glory of God. Let you in this situation, in this circumstance, with this group of people, let your motivation be, I want God to be glorified in this. How will the Lord be most glorified in this situation? Is he going to be glorified if I eat? I'm with a bunch of people that don't have any problem with this and we're all in agreement, then hey, yeah, he's glorified in that. We're enjoying something that he made. But if I'm with somebody who has a problem with this and I don't eat, he's glorified in that because I'm exercising the love of Christ. Remember what Paul said in chapter 8? Hey, when you do something, when you exercise your liberty in such a way that offends your brother or causes him to violate his conscience, you actually are sinning against Jesus because he's part of the body of Jesus. So that doesn't bring glory to God. So I ask myself, hey, in this situation that I'm in, which decision is going to be the one that brings glory to God? And I act on that. And that's what I I allow to, to guide me. And really, can I just say this? This should be the overarching motivation for every single thing in our life. I want to read verse 31 again. Notice what he says. Therefore, whatever you... Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. Everybody say, whatever you do. What does that mean? In everything. (laughs) Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So it's basically saying what we were singing tonight. Lord, in my life, be glorified. Be magnified. Be magnified. You know, when you guys go to work, I tell you what, this will change your whole perspective about your job. Go to work tomorrow, go to work next week, not to earn a paycheck, not to get your boss's approval. You go to work and say, I'm going to do what I'm called to do here for the glory of God. Your job will become so enjoyable because you'll be doing it for the Lord and no one else. Ladies, when you're cleaning the house, Or if you're cooking a meal. Don't do that in hopes that your family is going to say, Mom, that was such a great dinner. How many times does that not happen, right? (laughs) Do it for the glory of God. And then when they do say, Mom, that was a great dinner. That's just a cherry on top. That's just icing on the cake. But you do it for the, for the Lord. I'm doing this for the Lord. It's like the woman who had this sign, you know, on, above her kitchen. Divine service takes place here twice a day. Breakfast and dinner. I'm doing this for the Lord. Cleaning dishes. I'm doing this for the Lord. Ladies, when you, I know some of you ladies, you work in the, you know, outside the home. Again, you too, going to work. I am not doing this for my boss. I'm not doing this for a promotion. I'm not doing this for a paycheck. I'm doing this for the glory of God. I want to glorify God. I want God to be magnified through my life in this place where he has set me. When when you are doing service, when you're serving in the church... I was talking to somebody the other day that was talking about how sometimes service can, you know, being involved in service in a church can feel like a job. That only happens when we stop doing it for the glory of God. 
You guys that teach children's ministry, you, you gals that, that are holding babies in the nursery and you're changing diapers, God bless you for doing that. Change a diaper for the glory of God. Jesus said this, hey, if you give a cup of water to a little child in my name, you're gonna be rewarded for that. Isn't that amazing to think about? I think God's got so many rewards for us that we don't even know about, but it all starts with the right attitude, you know? I'm giving a cup of water because that stinking kid won't stop crying, and, you know, and I just want to, you know, to get him to shut up, you know, and I hate, the, why am I, why did I sign up for this? You know, there's no reward in that. But hey, do it for the glory of God, and it becomes enjoyable. In everything that I do, if, if my desire is, God, I want you to be glorified, you know what? That means I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give my best. In everything that I do, I'm going to give my best. I'm not going to cut corners. I'm not going to go at it, you know, half-hearted. In my hobbies and the things that I'm pursuing, you know, I'm going to do that to the glory of God. You know, when you begin to live in that type of way on everything, life becomes so much more enjoyable. So Paul says, our first motivation is the glory of God. The second motivation is the testimony of the gospel. Look at verse 32, and we'll wrap this up. He says, give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, to the believers, Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, and here's why, that they may be saved. And then Paul says, chapter 11, verse 1, actually goes with chapter 10. So imitate me as I imitate Christ. See, Paul's again, he's going full circle back to what he said in chapter 9 when he used himself as a right use of liberty. Look at chapter 9. Actually, it'll be on the screen. Verse 22 and 23 he says, I have become all things to all men that by all means I might save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake that I may be a partaker of it with you. He's saying, look guys, we're all in this together and I want you to adopt the same mindset that I adopt. Let's be all things to all men for this reason that we might win some people to Jesus. It's an awesome way to live. We live, we go into our day. Hey, I'm doing this today, this mundane thing suddenly is no longer a mundane thing. It becomes an act of worship because I'm doing it for God. I'm doing it for Jesus. I want him to be glorified in this. I'm in this situation at work and, and you know, I'm around these unbelievers and what's my focus? It's all about gospel testimony. It's the opportunity for the gospel to be seen in my life, in my work ethic, and when I get the opportunity to tell people about Jesus. If you live that way, if you seek to live that way, you will be free, you will be full of joy, and you will be radically effective. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for this example that we have, um, that Paul has given us tonight. And Lord, we want to heed tonight his exhortation to flee idolatry. And Lord, we don't want to change the image of who you are, like so many seem to do today, to try to 
make Jesus into this idea that they have in their minds of what he is like. Lord, we want to hold to what your word says about who you are and what you taught. Lord, we don't want to be those who choose our way above your way. Lord, we don't, want to, we, don't, we, don't, we don't want to be those type of believers who say, I know what the Bible says, but, Lord, we want to be those who say, I know what the Bible says, and I'm going to bow. I'm going to surrender to that. And, Lord, I pray that we would be those who would only have one being on the seat on the throne in our lives and that would be you that our heart that our prayer that the way that we would conduct our lives tonight would be Lord your kingdom come your will be done Lord your will above my will your way above my way your kingdom over my kingdom And that would play out in our lives. That we would live as people in everything that we do for your glory. And that the word and the testimony of the gospel would be emulated in our lives. That the very way that we live would give credibility to the words that we speak. Lord, we know we're never going to be perfect. As long as we are in these bodies and living on this planet, we're going to struggle with our flesh and struggle with sin. And we thank you, God, for your forgiveness. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. And we rely upon your grace. But Lord, we don't want to live in rebellion. We don't want to have stubborn hearts like Saul. Where Samuel said he was practicing idolatry by his stubbornness. No, we want to live, Lord, for your glory in everything that we do. Thank you, Lord.